Okay, let's talk about candles for a minute. Do you know that almost 2 billion candles are sold globally each year and almost all of them are likely to end up in landfills for the next 1 million years? It's insane. That's why I think it's really cool that Notes candles exist. They're working to eliminate single-use candle vessels and give home fragrance lovers a more earth-friendly option. Notes has created a refillable candle system that allows you to use your candle vessel over and over again. It is super easy. The candles are made with fragranced wax beads, so all you do is place the wick in your reusable notes jar and fill it up with the wax beads and enjoy your fragrance for up to 36 hours. The Santal and Atlas Cedar scent is like this woodsy calming smell. It's so nice. And they have oat milk and balsam berry, vanilla and pepperwood, pistachio and rose water, and a total of 13 really great options to choose from. Be a responsible consumer while not giving up high quality home fragrance by making the switch to notes. You can build your custom starter kit right now at notescandle.com slash that sounds fun. Right now, notes is giving our friends 15% off and free shipping when you buy a notes starter kit using the code that sounds fun. Just use that code that sounds fun when you're placing your order. That's that sounds fun at notescandle.com slash that sounds fun. Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of That Sounds Fun. I'm your host, Annie F. Downs. It's a really special week here on the podcast. I cannot wait for you to hear it. Before we dive into today's conversation, a word from one of our amazing sponsors, BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's easier for me to focus on the problems that are rearing their ugly heads than on actually solving the problems. I think it's part of human nature, but we can also probably agree that it's not the most constructive approach. I mean, the only way out is through, right? If you find yourself needing a nudge toward the problem, solving perspective you're looking for, a therapist can definitely, definitely help provide that. And BetterHelp is a great option if you're looking to connect with a therapist. See, we've all got challenges and stress, whether it's work, relationships, anxiety, things from the past, so many options of what could be challenging right now. And a therapist can help you walk through the process of working through those things. I'm so, so grateful for how my counselor helps me reframe things. BetterHelp will match you with a licensed professional counselor after you fill out a brief survey. They want you to have a great match, so they make it easy to switch therapists if you need to. It's convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash That Sounds Fun today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash That Sounds Fun. And if you're not sure you caught that whole URL, no worries. All the links to our sponsors, the transcript of the show, and even a place to sign up to get an email from me every Friday that AFD Week in Review. Those are all in the show notes below. This week on the show, I'm passing the microphone over to my good friend, Pastor Mike Kelsey. Y'all know and love him already. He's been on the show. He joined us at our TSF Tour live show in Grand Rapids in 2021, and he's hosted the show for a whole week the last couple of years. He's a lead pastor of preaching and culture at McLean Bible Church just outside of Washington, D.C., and it's Mike's passion to advance the gospel in multi-ethnic context that make him such a trusted 
trusted voice in leading and teaching me about what racial justice looks like. And honestly, I think it's a really humble, generous gift that he and his guests would invite us to continue learning about racial reconciliation through the unique opportunity of getting to hear conversations between people of all races without me in the room. So I asked Mike if he would host a week of shows for us again, and he so graciously agreed. I can't wait for you to hear these two episodes this week, you guys, because listen to how Mike asked to build these episodes. As conversations with friends about the Asian American experience in regards to racism, y'all. Talk about using his power to amplify and advocate for the voices of others. I'm so inspired by Mike. I cannot wait for you to hear from his guest this week. Today, he's talking with Helen Lee. Helen's been in Christian publishing since 1993. She's done work everywhere from Christianity Today to Leadership Journal to InterVarsity Press and pretty much everywhere in between. Her authoring and co-authoring credits include The Racewise Family, The Missional Mom, Growing Healthy Asian American Churches, and she's the co-founder of the Best Christian Workplaces Institute, and we are such fans of their work. In fact, we got to meet several of their team members out on tour earlier this year. It was awesome. I love what they do. Mike and Helen talk about her experience growing up Asian in a predominantly white community, how Asian Americans often feel in conversations about race, and y'all are going to love this part, the process of writing and publishing and how aspiring writers can work on their craft. Y'all are going to love her and this conversation. So here's our host, Pastor Mike Kelsey, and his conversation with Helen Lee. Well, Helen Lee, uh, I've already told you I'm a fan out for a moment, but I am, uh, I'll I'll explain why in a minute, but I'm super excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Pastor Mike. It's an honor to be here with you today. Yeah. So I want to catch our our listeners up for a moment before we dive in. Mm -hmm. I have been and had the privilege really of of hosting uh, a few episodes uh, for Annie. And I always say this every time I'm here, I don't know why she keeps doing this, but um, (laughs) But typically, I've been trying to be a helpful tour guide for people to maybe understand a bit more of the African-American experience. Mm -hmm. What are some of the challenges, the tensions that Black Christians in particular um, are are walking through and and how Mm -hmm. people can can grow in relationship and empathy and awareness and justice and all that. Mm -hmm. Alongside that, I've been on my own journey. Mm. And that has been, uh, I I push people all the time to grow, like ignorance is never an excuse, right? So uh, we have the opportunity, especially in 2022, to learn. We have access, more access than any generation ever. Um, Well, here's the thing, that's true for me too. Mm. And so uh, I wanted to devote these episodes to exploring the Asian American experience Mm. because I've been on a journey through some really helpful just friendships, um, mm-hmm. but also in my pastoral ministry. And uh, and so as I was kind of looking and thinking and processing who would I want to interview, I stumbled across your name mm-hmm. and started just reading some of your stuff, reading your book, The Race Wise Family, mm-hmm. which is just so helpful for parents who are trying to help their children navigate mm-hmm. these issues and grow in just empathy and compassion and education and wisdom and just, just the facility of being able to navigate these issues. So that's been helpful to me. Mm. And then I realized you are the author of a book I bought my wife. 
a couple years ago. <laughs> probably <laughs> the, like 10 years ago. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> the missional mom. Ago. And uh, yeah. so you've been in the game for a while. So I'm excited mm. to get to talk to you about writing and publishing because mm. of what you do professionally sure. with InterVarsity Press. Yeah. But I'm also um, really excited to learn just from uh, uh, more from your journey as, an, as a Korean American woman. Mm. Um, but I want to let me I want to dive right into a bit of a sensitive question. Um, okay. But one that you gave me permission to ask. Let me just say that. Yeah. When I first reached out to you, we had never interacted, never met. Mm. I just emailed you cold. And I was like, (laughs) I don't know if she's even going (laughs) to respond to my email. And when you responded, you were... you were a bit cautious, I would say, mm. about about coming on and being interviewed. And uh, well, I was going to say I'm curious to know why, but I know because we've talked about it. But <laughs> I think it'd be helpful for some of our listeners to understand where was that caution coming from mm. for you? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I was super honored to be asked for sure. I mean, of course, I know Annie Downs by name. I haven't met her. Hopefully that day will come. And I appreciate a lot about her ministry, and I'm sure about the listeners who uh, appreciate this podcast. But I think if you're a person of color entering into what you imagine to be a largely white space, a largely white listenership, I could be wrong about that. So I am making some assumptions here. But you always have to enter those spaces with some of your guard up, with a little bit of trepidation, because there's a wide range of groups of white Christians, some of some of whom are not always as welcoming uh, to those of us mm. who are people of color, some who are even hostile at times for various reasons, depending on the kinds of topics we're talking about. And and so I, I felt like I needed to know more. I, I couldn't just say mm. yes, um, all in. And partly because when I think about the topics we are likely going to talk about today, uh, we're going to talk about issues of race and ethnicity and, and things like that, which are not always considered fun topics. Like I love talking about them. I think they're super important. I think they're super valuable for all of us, whether we're people of color or not in the church to be aware of and thinking about. Mm. But it might not jive with a that sounds fun kind of vibe. So that Mm. also gave me a little bit of pause. Like, how are we going to have these conversations in a way that somehow fits the vibe of the podcast? So anyway, I had questions. I had questions, but you were really patient and you were really thoughtful in the way you helped reassure me and, and the way you talked mm. about how listeners have been responding to you with your mm. past episodes uh, with mm. other guests of color. And that was really reassuring. I think when you hear from another person of color that a, a space is a safe space that helps mm. a lot. So that, that yeah. was really reassuring for me. And so, yes, here I am. Yeah. And I appreciate you sharing that. You know, I consider myself now, I'm just, I'm kind of a part of the That Sounds Fun, you know, family. I'm not on mm-hmm. their staff or anything like that, but I'm just claiming mm-hmm. it. And yeah. uh, and and I've yeah. been so blessed, and I shared this with you, even being able to be on the That Sounds Fun tour and get to mm. actually interact face-to-face yes. with some of the people that have listened to some of these episodes. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's been a huge blessing, but, and Annie knows this, and I'll mm-hmm. brag on her in a moment, but when we first <laughs> met, and then, you know, a little less than a year later, she invited me to come on the podcast for the first time. Mm. I had the same caution. And she knows mm. this. I had to mm-hmm. ask around. You yeah. know, I had to ask some friends that that yeah. knew her that I trusted. And I had one of my one of my boys, you know, said, Annie is a real one. 
And mm. for him to say that uh, was huge for me. And so I, I've been able to uh, to confirm that. And uh, mm-hmm. But I wanted listeners to hear that because what you just shared is a very common strategic mm. move uh, as a person of color where we do find ourselves having to vet mm. uh, these invitations and opportunities that are offered to us. Um, and, uh, and so, so part of the reason why I wanted to interview you and wanted to talk about the experience of Asian Americans in, in our country, but also in our church is because in the same ways that I've been trying to help folks understand, particularly in predominantly white spaces, understand the experience of African Americans, I think it is very helpful and necessary to discipline ourselves to listen to with humility, mm-hmm. uh, not just immediately in order to critique or to defend, but to listen in order to genuinely learn and, mm-hmm. and even to be changed. Mm. And uh, I've tried to, and I'll share some, you know, sometimes I've done better than at other times. I've tried to put myself in that posture uh, with uh, Asian American sisters and brothers that have invited me into their life and have been willing mm-hmm. to process that with me. From your perspective, why do you think this is such an important topic? And, and specifically, I would say, you know, for, in terms of the Asian American experience, I know we can talk about race in general, mm-hmm. but why would you say this is important for folks to listen into? Yeah, when I think about the beautiful picture in Revelation 7, right? It's this amazing amazing vision of peoples from all nations, tribes, tongues, ethnicities, all worshiping God together, right? That's our future, right? Which is so reassuring, so wonderful. I love that God cares so much to paint that beautiful multi-ethnic picture at the end of time. But we, the church, are called to bring heaven to earth, right? Like that's Mm. part of our call. That's part of our mission as his followers on earth. We don't have to wait for Revelation 7. That will be this amazing picture. But I think part of our calling as Christians is to try to pursue that reality in the here and now, try to pursue ethnic and racial understanding and peace and reconciliation. So to understand, I think, the Asian American experience, it means that you you care about God's family in all its fullness. And you recognize if, for example, you, you might have a lack of understanding of Asian American issues, a lack of relationship with other Asian American brothers and sisters. If you notice that in your own life, I think that you have an opportunity to try to start making some changes in your own personal context that will hopefully uh, benefit not just yourself, uh, yourself, your family, your your church, your community. And that's all, again, pointing towards our call as Christians to reach for that Revelation 7 vision now, because Mm. I think it has a tremendous witness for what we can do in the world. Mm. Uh, This is just my bottom line bias, is that no one but the church, because we have Jesus, can truly understand and reflect a reconciled community, right? I mean, Mm. there are a lot of secular spaces that are talking about race. There are a lot of people who are talking about race. But if you don't have the cross in the middle of that conversation, there cannot be true and full reconciliation, right? Mm. So that's something we have to offer um, Mm. in the church. And that means you have to try to start understanding all the members of your family, your spiritual family, mm, from mm-hmm. all different kinds of ethnic and racial backgrounds. Mm, um, yeah. It's part of our witness. 
And yeah. I mean, to be completely frank, it's also where the U.S. is going. I mean, this is mm. like pure demographic reality. This is not the reason we do this, but it's certainly something to keep in mind. I mean, I, I was looking at the last census numbers and Asian Americans, the Asian American community has grown the most of all different categories mm. of demographic mm. groups in the country from 20, I guess it was uh, 2010 to 2020. We're talking about an, about an 80% increase in wow. the number of people. It was the fastest growing ethnic and racial group in the U.S. So mm. this is a community that is growing and will be continuing to be a larger and larger part of the church. So we want to know and, and serve and be hospitable to mm. our family members in the church who are of a different different ethnic background. And it's important for us to just keep that in mind as we're thinking about how to learn and grow in our own relationships and our own understanding. Yeah, that's so good. Now, so for the person that's listening who maybe they're not a Christian, uh, they don't have a Christian background. Mm. Help us understand a bit when you talk about the cross at the center of this mm. reconciling community. What is it? What is it about the cross, the 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 work of Jesus that lays the foundation for this? How is the Christian mm. vision of a reconciled community different or unique? Yeah. So we believe in a Christ who sacrificed his life on our behalf, who laid down his life to save all of us so that we could be in relationship, in right relationship with the God of the universe, right? That's mm. kind of the, the core gospel message is a message of reconciliation. It is through our belief and our trust and our dedication and devotion to Jesus, our decision to follow him as our Savior and Lord, that we become reconciled to God um, in the spirit of understanding that Jesus gave it all. I gave his life. We believe he died on that cross to save each and every one of us. And by doing so then, uh, by our understanding that, embracing that, asking for forgiveness for our sins and asking Jesus to be the one to be the Lord of our lives, we become reconciled to God. And by so doing, that opens up a new understanding of how we are to be reconciled to one another. There is, mm. there's love at the center of that. Jesus did that, paid it all, paid our, mm. paid for our sins because of his love for us. Mm -hmm. God sent his son because of his love for us. And as we embrace that core concept of love, that gives us the strength then to be reconciled mm. to others in that spirit of love. It doesn't matter if people don't love us back. It doesn't matter if they misunderstand us or if they even hate us. Mm. Love and that desire and that willingness we have to sacrifice our own personal preferences, our own, uh, our, 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 anything on our own that we might want to hold on to, if we are willing to let it go and say, mm. God, use us as instruments of love. And this is very much what Martin Luther King Jr. did. And his, all of his message was about the power of love. Mm -hmm. not, not, not violence, not hate, but love. How powerful that is as a reconciling mm -hmm. force. Mm -hmm. That's what we as Christians are called to do. And mm -hmm. if we can show that, if we can start to more effectively and truly and sincerely show that we are driven by the love of Christ in all that we do, I've got to believe that makes an impact on the world around us. That shows mm. that this is real. It's not just some fluff that we say to get into heaven as life insurance. Yeah. It has an impact on how we relate to one another and how mm -hmm. we relate to the culture around us. Mm -hmm. That's so good. And one of my, not concerns, but I think it's a healthy caution. Uh, uh, diversity is, is trendy right now. 
mm-hmm. um, and, and, and in a lot of good ways. But uh, I think, and this would be a challenge, particularly to Christians, to say if, if our commitment to diversity and equity and reconciliation mm-hmm. and justice, if it's not rooted in something deeper than a cultural trend, yes. then we'll, we'll just repeat some of the mistakes that we've seen you know, in the past. Uh, right now, we have the wind at our backs in some ways mm. in culture, maybe not always in the evangelical church, but mm-hmm. we have the wind at our backs in culture because it's a it's a very compatible commitment, you know, mm-hmm. that we are we want to be more inclusive. We want, yeah. but if we ever find ourselves in another culture or another mm-hmm. cultural moment mm-hmm. where that is not as convenient or a- advantageous or celebrated, yes. uh, what is our motivation for doing exactly. the hard work of reconciliation and justice? So I appreciate you walking us through that. I want to back up a little bit um, to talk about your personal journey. Sure. And uh, this was one of the reasons I was just so excited to interview you uh, because I've, I've listened to some of your story. I've heard you talk about mm. it. And so um, I'm, I'd love for you to share, uh, and I guess I'll put it this way, like when did you first realize you were Asian? And I put mm. that in quotes mm-hmm. because what I mean is kind of according to like the American kind of racial conception of, of Asian. Like when did yeah. you first realize you fit somewhere in that. Yeah. So I'll tell a little bit of my backstory to say I was born in the U.S., so I am a natural-born American citizen. And when I I was a kid, I would say that a lot. I would say, hey, I can be president of the United States. You know, I was born here. I think Mm -hmm. that was my, like, juvenile, youthful way of saying to those around me, I'm from here, you know, I'm not, Mm. I I am an American just like you are, because there was something in me that recognized that sometimes people looked at me and didn't assume that. They didn't assume I was American. Mm. They assumed I was Mm. from somewhere else. And Mm. we can talk about that a little more down the road. But I grew up in um, a family My both uh, where both of my parents were immigrants. I'm second generation Korean American. My dad immigrated. He actually grew up in Pyongyang, which became the capital of North Korea and was a refugee during the Korean War and immigrated eventually to the U.S. um, as a grad student. My mom separately immigrated from South Korea and they met on a blind date and got married and had me. Mm. Um, so anyway, that's I'm second generation Korean American. And so I knew, you know, I'm Korean because both my parents are Korean. We would eat Korean food and uh, observe various Korean cultural customs. But there was a pivotal moment for me in sixth grade. This is one of those indelible moments where I, I just can never forget it. We I was in a classroom I'm the only person of color in this classroom, um, mm. so only Asian American, only person of color, only uh, only student of color, and we were filling out a form. I I don't know what it was for, mm. but one of those typical forms. And the teacher just stopped all of all of a sudden in the beginning of our process of doing this, and she said, "Now everybody in this class, you all will check that box that says white on the form, but you you Helen, you're going to check that box that says Asian." Mm. And I just remember feeling just sudden and shocking shame. Like everybody Mm. turned around to stare at me. All the other kids in the class just started staring at me. Mm. And they looked at me as if I was like an alien, you know? Mm. I was something, they looked at me as if something was wrong with me. Mm. And it became just crystallized in that moment that I was different. I probably knew on an intuitive level 
mm-hmm. that I was different. But something about the way that that was showcased um, in a way that felt very shaming, um, mm. th- that I became embarrassed about my racial identity. So that mm. was the beginning of a very long journey, actually, for me to finally mm. get to a point on the other side where I can say now today, you know, I I don't feel that way. I feel a great appreciation to God for my ethnic heritage, but that mm. has been a journey uh, that took many, many years to overcome from that mm. particular incident. Wow. So, okay. So then where did you go from there? I mean, it, so you had that mm. moment of, of shaming mm-hmm. and I heard you highlight, I don't know if that was the first, well, you kind of had the instinct uh, Mm -hmm. that you were different, but that was maybe the first moment where that was just so evident. Uh, I'm just in my mind picturing you in a classroom now with everybody Mm -hmm. turned and looking at you. What did you do with that moment, like moving forward from there? Yeah, so there was a beginning of a rejection for me of my own cultural heritage. I would say things mm. like, I would tell my parents that I I don't want to ever marry someone Korean. Like anything that was Korean, I didn't want anything to do mm. with. You know, we would set the table for dinner, you know, to eat our, eat our dinner together as a family and everyone else would use chopsticks and I would always put a fork down. I would like reject the chopsticks even mm. <laughs> because it was okay. another like symbol of my Asian-ness. Mm. Mm. And I would move through um, year after year from that point on and notice like every single time I was the only Asian American or the only person of color. I experienced some racial taunting and bullying through my adolescent years, which made it even more important for me to like stay distant, you know, from my Mm -hmm. ethnic and cultural heritage because it was a source Mm -hmm. of pain. It -hmm. was a source of a reminder that I don't fit in that this world doesn't want me around or this particular context doesn't want me around. So Mm. all I could do is try to minimize it, try to figure out a way to blend in or assimilate Mm. essentially is I think what I was trying to do Mm. from that point on for many, many years. And it wasn't Mm. until I got to college where I started meeting some Christian Asian Americans Mm. who were so healing for me because they were able to demonstrate that Their faith led them to understand God as a God who had gifted me with my Mm. ethnic heritage. It wasn't like a random, fatalistic kind of a choice that I just happened to get the bad luck of being Korean. Mm. It wasn't that. Mm -hmm. It was God's gift to me. It was God's blessing on me. And, And learning that truth, it just changed my relationship with God. It just changed my conception of who I was. It was huge for me. I think that didn't happen until my senior year in college. So we're wow. talking about from sixth grade all the way wow. through my senior year in college. I had this understanding mm. of who I was that wasn't accurate, that I was somehow um, doomed because I was an mm. Asian person um, in the U.S. It took me a while you know, to get to the point where I could embrace, this is God's gift to me, and I'm, mm. I'm fortunate. We all should be grateful and all should feel grateful for who God has made us to be. But sometimes living and moving through our world here in the U.S., and, our, and particularly mm. in the U.S. context, we, people of color don't always feel that way. So we have to mm. battle that tension mm. of like leaning into the truth of God's gift to us in the gift of ethnicity and somehow rejecting mm. the lies that Satan is trying to 
play, the lies that society is trying to give us, that we don't matter or we're less yeah. than or not as valuable as mm. someone who is white or in the dominant culture. Yeah. Well, first of all, you mentioned you put the chopsticks down and pick up the fork. I, that I, I did a sigh of relief because I'm like, I do that too. I put the chopsticks now <laughs> because I'm like, I cannot, no matter how many tutorials I get, I, I've not been able to master it and I'm trying. But let me let me ask you this. Did that that period of time where you were, you said, minimizing your mm. kind of Koreanness, mm-hmm. did that create any tension between you and your parents? Like, how did they navigate that? Or did they even see that you were trying to do that? Yeah. So I think that the reality of growing up in an immigrant household is that my parents just were super, super busy and didn't necessarily engage in conversation with me. And this is one of the things in hindsight, I wish we had talked about it more. Maybe Mm. they could have helped me with some of that healing journey. For the most part, they just kind of laughed it off. Like, okay, mm. she's she's saying this now. When she gets older, it'll be different. But, um, mm. and it's funny because ironically, I did end up marrying a Korean Canadian. So I did stay true to my promise <laughs> not to marry a Korean American. <laughs> but I married a Korean North American instead. But in mm. any case, um, I know for a number of my friends, however, who, you know, who are, who were Korean, who felt similarly, they, they didn't necessarily want to marry someone in the same cultural context, that provokes so much familial tension. I mean, mm. lots and lots of heartbreak and heartache. So uh, it's certainly that that whole piece of trying to reconcile your own ethnic identity, coming to terms with it, maybe rejecting it uh, within your particular family context. It's a huge area of potential heartbreak, uh, a lot of heartache for a lot of people that I know. So I know it probably Mm. worried them, you know, and I think that it probably hurt them on some level that it felt like I was rejecting them in a way. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. As a kid, I probably wasn't yet, I wasn't attuned enough to those dynamics to fully understand it. So, So much in Asian culture, I think is unspoken. We have a, there's kind of an implicitness. There's like a, a mentality that if you are doing the right thing, you won't get into any conflicts because you're you're ascertaining the situation, you're understanding everyone's feelings. And so there should never be mm. conflict if you're doing the right thing. But of course, that's very mm. different from your typical Western way of thinking of mm. we're going to have conflict because we're different. And that's not an Asian way of thinking at all. And I, I use these, these terms um, broadly knowing that there are differences and distinctions among various Asian cultures and ethnicities. But that was true for me where we didn't necessarily always talk about these things explicitly, but I, I've got to believe that it mm. probably caused some heartache for my parents to hear mm. me talk in this way. Mm. Yeah. Well, you, you brought something up that I want to come back to in a minute about the differences even within the Asian American community, because quite frankly, I think that's one of the biggest kind of growth curves for those of mm-hmm. us that are non-Asian. We tend to, I think, look at Asian Americans, part of the racial construct that's been yes. kind of created in our country where we yeah. just kind of lump all mm-hmm. whatever we mean by Asian, you know, uh, people mm-hmm. together and assume the same culture, same values, mm-hmm. um, even same, you know, physical features. We just we lump everybody in. Mm-hmm. So I. I I would love for you to, to, to help me with that. 
Hey, friends, just interrupting this conversation real quick to share about one of our amazing partners, Liquid IV. You know I love a good routine, especially in the morning. Some reading and journaling time, my skincare regimen while listening to a podcast or two, tea time. These are the things that are making up my day that is headed in the right direction. But we've got to make sure we're addressing one of the most important aspects of our daily health, hydration, you guys. Now that the weather's getting colder, signs of dehydration are harder to notice. We're not sweating as much or feeling overheated, but that doesn't mean we don't need to pay attention. Liquid IV fuels your well-being with easy ways to stay hydrated. In just one stick, you're getting five essential vitamins and hydrating two times faster than with water alone. Whether you're like me and use your Liquid IV while you're prepping for the day or if you're traveling and long flights are coming up like I am on this week, Liquid IV is an essential addition to your routine. I always have Liquid IV with me when I travel, especially anytime I'm headed toward a higher elevation than usual for me. Woof. Liquid IV is literally the only way I don't get a headache. It comes in slim little packets that are easy to slide into your purse or carry on or backpack. And there are so many delicious flavors to choose from. I'm partial to the acai, but y'all know the energy multiplier and lemon ginger is a close second favorite for me. Liquid IV is made with premium ingredients and contains three times the electrolytes of traditional sports drinks. But what it does not have, no GMOs, no gluten, no dairy, no soy, and no worries. So grab your Liquid IV in bulk nationwide at Costco, or you can get 15% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code that sounds fun at checkout. That's 15% off anything you order when you shop better hydration today using the promo code that sounds fun at liquidiv.com. And now back to Mike and Helen's conversation. As I think about somebody listening who resonates with your experience, Um, This might be a Korean-American woman or a Chinese-American woman. It might be somebody who's not Asian-American but understands what it's like to be othered. Um, I think often about W.E.B. Du Bois. He wrote a Mm -hmm. uh, just legendary book, The Souls of Black Folk, and he talked about double consciousness. Mm -hmm. And it's basically the struggle of navigating the tension between two identities, being black and being American. And, uh, And so I hear you articulating the same thing, you mm. know, it's, it's double consciousness, but in terms of your Korean heritage and um, what advice would you give? And I'll, I'll, I'll be specific to other Asian Americans, but I think mm. we can all learn from your wisdom on this. What advice would you give other Asian Americans who are wrestling with that tension and trying to navigate that and trying to land in a place of peace Right about their their um, Asian American heritage. Uh, what advice would you give? Yeah, so I think first is to recognize what is the source of that tension. Like, why was I experiencing it to begin with? And mm. I'll tell well, I'll tell a story maybe, and that'll help me get into this. So my mm. my son, I have three boys, and when my eldest was in junior high school, one night we were talking before um, he went to bed, and he said, he said, "Mom, I'm really struggling." I don't think I'm very handsome. I said, mm. all right, where, where did that come from? I, you know, I, of course, you know, moms think that all their own kids are handsome or beautiful or that sort of thing. So I, I tried to reassure him in that moment. And I, and I tried to then probe further to find out why are you like, what's, what's prompting this? Mm. And he said, you know, when, when I look around, like all the boys who seem to get like the attention, none of them look like me. 
And I started to understand he was talking about the fact that he, as an Asian American, uh, in context where he was often the only or one of the very few Asian Americans, was comparing himself to kind of a white normative context. And that was what was provoking this feeling of I'm not as good, I'm not as handsome, etc. And so... That's partly the root of where some of this stems from and where the origins of where these feelings start is because we are mm. comparing ourselves to a white normative context for many of us. And so, of course, in that, if we're not aware that that's kind of the underbelly of it all, we can just go down this rabbit hole of just thinking poorly of ourselves, thinking worse of ourselves, because we don't realize that that's where... It's starting. It's starting from us saying, okay, this is the norm. This is the mm. right way. This is the only way. This is the better way. And so, of course, we fall short. No, you have to like go right to that source of the white normativity is just an evil, evil, it's an evil construct uh, that mm. is, that does not at all the way God wants it to be, not at mm -hmm. all what he has called us all to be as image bearers of the Lord, equal in his eyes, equally valued in his eyes, no matter what ethnic background we come from, no matter what our racial background is, it's, mm. we are called to see each other as image bearers of God and to value each other equally. And it's when that mm. doesn't happen that we get into these mindsets that are totally and completely false, that we are not as good as we are not as valued. And that's, that's a, just, it's just a lie. I mean, I, I mm. it's a lie from the pit of hell. I mean, I don't know how else yeah. to put it except to just yeah. name yeah, it. Say, say what it is. Absolutely. Name yes. it as such. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. I think for people of color to understand that it, that lie is so insidious. We sometimes don't even realize how mm. much it's shaping our own self-perception and our, our mm. own self-understanding. So that's like, I think a, a starting point to recognize it's invisible, right? You can't mm. necessarily see it, but you 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 know it when you start experiencing it, uh, mm. and to and to identify when that happens, I think is a really important starting point. Um, I think it's helpful to then find others who maybe are in their own journey of understanding their Asian Americanness who can help you identify when that lie is operating. Who can help you name it and repudiate it and claim the truth that you are valued mm. and you uh, in the unique way God has created you that that is his gift to you in terms of your ethnic heritage and to and to just own that truth. So it takes I think finding folks who can help you just own that truth, name that truth and help you also to see the ways that the the white normativity can prevent us from owning that truth. Mm. Wow. Uh, as a mom, I'm sure that that was a tough moment for you listening mm -hmm. to your son. Um, but we, you know, there's been so many studies done on mm -hmm. that very dynamic. And so mm -hmm. this isn't just a subjective personal experience. It is that, mm -hmm. but this has just been well documented. And I think it's helpful for Asian Americans, African Americans, just people of color in general to recognize the effect that that can have on us. Ways yeah. that we can perpetuate that against others and that mm -hmm. we can just embrace it for ourselves. And um, yeah, so I, thank you for, for, for sharing that. Um, you mentioned this kind of the normativity and Mm. One of the things I've seen is, I know it's not out of nowhere. It probably feels out of nowhere to me. It probably mm. isn't to you. But I've seen Asian American culture 
it's mm-hmm. almost like it's having a moment. <laughs> like, like it's uh, just in terms of like uh, pop culture and mm-hmm. entertainment. Um, and obviously, uh, we still have a long way to go, I think, in terms mm-hmm. of equitable uh, access and resources and opportunities. But uh, mm-hmm. I heard you uh, talking on another podcast. So I was low-key stalking you uh, uh, as I was <laughs> oh, preparing dear. for this Uh-oh. interview. <laughs> but I thought this was so fascinating. I heard you talking about significant pop culture moments that hmm. have kind of brought Asian American culture into the mainstream. And so when yeah. you were talking, I was like, "Is somebody, is there a book on this? Or it's just so <laughs> fascinating because I'm one who has consumed some of those pop culture moments, yeah, yeah. but without really understanding the significance of it. So can you walk us through, like, what are some of some of them that come to, to your mind where Asian Americans oh, were almost kind of like, yes, we're out here, you know? Oh, gosh, there's this. OK, I'll try. <laughs> there are books out there. I wish I could remember the name of one in particular that's come out on this particular topic. So I'll have to send it to you later so you can put it in the show notes. But um, mm. so, OK, as a as a kid growing up, I hardly ever saw Asian-Americans on the screen, right? On the small screen. Mm. The only time I remember seeing Korean characters was when the, the sitcom MASH was on. Do you remember MASH? Mm. It was set in mm-hmm. the Korean mm-hmm. War, right? And the actors were not often even uh, Korean <laughs> portrayed some of the characters in the show. But uh, I would see Brady Bunch and like that again, white normativity, right? Mm-hmm. So in 19, I think it was 1991 comes to mind. Maybe it was 1994. It was in the 90s where there was a sitcom called All American Girl starring the comedian Margaret Cho that mm. came on screen. And I was so excited. Like, oh, my goodness. There's a, comedian, a Korean American family is going to be depicted in a sitcom. Mm. The show was not good and was critically panned and it was a moment I think of collective shame honestly you know for wait 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 why why because I, I don't remember that show but like why uh, was it not why received was it panned? well so uh, aside from Margaret Cho herself who had not as much creative power I think that as she would have wanted mm-hmm. like none of the other um, producers directors writers none of them were Korean American so mm-hmm. how can you depict the reality of a Korean American family without having like a creative force behind the show be Korean American. Mm -hmm. I mean, Margaret was the only one and you heard later on after the fact how much challenge, how many challenges she had trying to Mm. even be like in the center of the show but not have all the creative power to be able to make Mm. decisions she wanted. So those of us who were Korean American watching it just felt like it was so inauthentic. It just didn't ring true. And Mm. I think there was, again, a lot of other critical errors the show made, such that it was not renewed. It didn't last very, very long. And it wasn't until like decades and decades later, we had Fresh Off the Boat, which was another Mm. sitcom that came onto ABC depicting a Taiwanese-American family based off of Eddie Huang's memoir. So that did Mm. better, which was good. We were all like collectively, I think, Asian-Americans who care about pop culture were... Breathing a sigh of relief when okay. that show. Okay, good came because on. I was withholding my commentary because I was about to say that show's hilarious, but I was like, but if <laughs> if Asian Americans didn't like it, I don't want to out myself as ignorant. Well, but. <laughs> well, I mean, probably there was a range, right? You know, of, of, okay. of reactions, but it did better. At least it did better. That did better. Okay, show. but but I mean, for those of us watching, I mean. Just imagine that, like you see yourself on the screen, reflected on the mm. screen so infrequently that once every 20 years a show comes along and you have to like mm. hope it does okay because mm. if this doesn't do well, there may not ever be another one. Like wow. think of how different that wow. experience is than for the typical 
viewer of sitcoms who get to see themselves mm. reflected all the time, all mm. the time mm-hmm, in family mm-hmm. or dramas or whatever it mm-hmm. might be, right? Mm-hmm. So you started to kind of start to see a little bit of, okay, at least there's like a little bit more openness to having content reflecting Asian American characters on the screen. Somehow yeah. it it made enough money probably that it felt like, okay, it's worth doing this. Mm. And then Crazy Rich Asians came onto the big screen. And I think that was an mm. interesting cultural moment because it seemed like everybody was loving this movie. And uh, I'm glad on one hand that there was a movie that seemed to uh, do well in the box offices that made future Hollywood directors, producers, and creators say, yeah, 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 movies, content about Asian Americans can do, can do well, so we should keep making them. Um, mm. So I was happy about that on one hand. But, you know, it's depicting a very specific kind of story, right, of a very, yeah. very wealthy Chinese family based in China. So it was kind of an interesting mix of you had a Chinese family depicted you had a Chinese American um, heroine in the middle. But some of those dynamics, I think, were maybe harder for a typical American viewer who is not themselves Asian to see some of those distinctions, if that makes any mm. sense. Mm-hmm, I guess mm-hmm. what I'm trying to get at is that we need a lot more stories. We need a lot more yeah. narratives that are both set in Asia, but also set in America as well and mm, kind of having mm-hmm. the chance to see more Asian American stories. So mm. I love seeing that, you know, K-pop is so popular. I love seeing that K-dramas are watched like worldwide. Mm-hmm. That's exciting. I loved seeing how popular Squid Game was when yeah, that broke that all was... the box office records, <laughs> right? Yes. Or all the records, you know, on Netflix. But there's watching, still a Watching bit Squid Game, by the way, is... Watching Squid Game is traumatizing. It is. So don't watch if My you God. are not into I saw gore. so many people talking about it. I was like, why is this thing so big? And I'm, my wife can't watch anything like that. And so one night I'm home by myself. I'm like, let me check out Squid Game. And the first episode, I was yeah. like, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, be careful. Yeah. Yes, parental yeah. advisory. Yeah. It, is vi- it is violent. Mm. Um, and so on one hand, there's part of me that is excited that you see mm. all this content by Asian creatives I being accepted globally. Um, mm. But there is like, for me, just as a point of clarification, there is a difference between seeing something that comes from a Korean director, a Korean television producer, director, mm-hmm. actors, and something that is Korean American. Like I, I can appreciate mm. it. And I'm excited for it. I love seeing it, but there is still kind of a distance and it. It's, it, it's still seen as like a foreign product because it is. It comes mm-hmm. from Korea. Mm-hmm. So that is for me as a Korean American. Like I think about it and I notice those distinctions. And I, mm. I want to see more Asian American stories. I love when I do see quality Asian American narratives depicted. Like I think one of the fun things that we're seeing from Mindy Kaling on Netflix is the mm. show Never Have I Ever depicting mm, an Indian mm-hmm. American family. And mm-hmm. it's 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 so good. It's good. It mm. honors the culture, but also depicts a, a particular Indian American experience. And I've I've loved watching that show as another example of something that mm. feels very like American. It's an Indian American tale. It is an American tale. And um, mm. I love those mm-hmm. kinds of experiences because we need more of those. Well, so let me ask you on that note then, what mm-hmm. are, one of the things I've learned, well, first of all, like you mentioned Crazy Rich Asians, when that mm-hmm. came out and it's this box office smash hit and everybody's watching and talking about, there seemed to be so much anticipation building up in general, mm. but but specifically in the Asian American community. 
And then when I talked to my friends afterwards, there were very split reactions, mm-hmm. you know, uh, yeah. to it, individual to individual, but even I would say kind of ethnic community to mm-hmm. uh, whether it's Koreans or Chinese or whatever. Yeah. And then you just mentioned this story kind of depicting this Indian American family. What are some of the, um, let's call it intramural, right? What are, what are some of the mm-hmm. nu- nuances within the Asian American communities? So you have these different ethnic, national kind of populations yeah. uh, that make up what we call the Asian American community. Right. What are some of those nuances that may be imperceptible? You know, it's, mm. we, for those of us on the outside, we may not even be aware of, mm. of some of those dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. So Asian, the word Asian, of course, you know, it is it is a potentially a political term, right? That kind of groups together mm. so many different cultural groups. I think it's well over 50 different ethnicities are included mm. in that term Asian. And so, and even if you even like drill it down to like East Asian, if we're talking about East Asian, meaning like Chinese, Japanese, mm-hmm. Korean, those three cultures are very, 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 very different. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, if I were to talk to my parents and ask them, what do you think the differences are between someone who's Chinese versus someone who's Korean versus someone who's Japanese, you know, for Koreans who experienced colonization on one hand and conquering on the other hand from these two nations, they would say, absolutely, Mm. these are very different nations. My parents Mm. even struggled at the idea that I would buy a Japanese car (laughs) because it was so Mm. even hard for them to think Mm -hmm, about supporting mm -hmm. an economy of a country that had colonized them and Mm. been a very, very difficult situation for Koreans at that time. So there's lots of histories and lots of nuances between these nations. And that's just Mm. East Asia we're talking about. There's East Mm. Asian, there's Southeast Asian, there's South Asian. You've got within even those three categories, so many different language, hundreds of languages Mm. included. Mm -hmm. In China itself, you've got a number of different languages and dialect. So there's there's cultural differences, mm-hmm. there's historical narratives that mm. form kind of a an under undercurrent of a foundation of history that makes it if you don't know all that history it's easy kind of to to mistake and imagine they're all just one no they they think of themselves very very differently as mm. cultural groups you have assimilation patterns too so you could have someone here in the US who is fourth or fifth generation chinese american mm. who's Great, 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 great grandparents immigrated here, you know, long, long ago, which is very different from someone who's just arrived and who's a first generation Mm. Chinese American, right? Or that whole immigration pattern is another whole part of the story. You have some people who Mm. are here who've come to the U.S. as refugees, as political refugees. And that is another whole story and dynamic that is so unique and so painful and so different and so um, just fraught with its own history and its own narrative. So whenever we use the term Asian American, and I've used it a zillion times even in this conversation, but whenever I use it, there is a part of me that always feels that twinge of, I know this is reductionistic. Mm -hmm, I know mm -hmm. this is oversimplifying. And there is is so much nuance and there is so much distinction between all these cultural groups. But it is for ease where we've come to in terms of being able to like group this segment together. Well, and I'll confess my own ignorance. I mean, uh, I remember one time I was officiating, I'm a pastor uh, mm-hmm. for listeners that don't know, and I'm officiating a wedding. Um, it's mm-hmm. a Chinese couple and mm-hmm. a Chinese family. And uh, I was after the wedding walking with one of the, uh, one of the other guests 
And uh, I didn't know him. He didn't know me. We're just happened to be mm-hmm. walking back to our cars at the same time. So we were talking. And this is embarrassing to admit, but I literally, I started asking him questions about like the Chinese like American experience. Mm-hmm. And now I just assumed because it was the family was Chinese and the couple mm-hmm. was Chinese and I'm walking with him and he looked roughly, <laughs> you know, Asian American. And I just started. Mm-hmm. And then he was he was super gracious uh, and it was kind of a dry humor, but he was dead serious. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I'm Korean, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And the reason I share that as embarrassing as it is is because there are a ton of people listening who have had those mm, moments yeah. uh, or, or, or are on the brink of having. You don't even know you're about to have it yet because mm, you don't mm. know what you don't know. Like, I don't know what yeah. I don't know. What are some of the mistakes that us non-Asian folks make? Like the, some of the common ones that you, you would say, these are some of the just most common hurtful mistakes that non-Asian American folks make in our interactions with other Asian mm. Americans. Yeah, I mean that. I, I, I thank you for sharing that story. I think sometimes it's hard to own those mistakes, and you know what? We all make them. I mean, I I'll make them sometimes when I talk about other cultural groups. So, I think giving ourselves some grace to know we are going to make those mistakes, and when you when you do, just just face them. Yeah, with humility and say I'm I'm sorry. And so don't expect even in your learning, even in my learning, I, you know, none of us will be perfect. But that said, I'd say. Okay, so that, that I have this list in my head um, of different different topics. They all they all end with ing. So stereotyping, I think, is one mm. area where Asian Americans are often are often stereotyped. Meaning, people will like fall into generalizations about Asian Americans that do not, by any means, apply or are not fair. Like all Asians are good at math and science, or mm-hmm. things like that. So mm-hmm. stereotyping certainly can be problematic. Othering, we've talked about this idea of being of othering. Like when someone looks at me and their immediate assumption is that I'm not from here. We talked about that earlier. This idea mm. of being a perpetual foreigner, that's a phrase that Asian Americans know really well. Every mm. single time we're asked, where are you from? And mm. when I say, I'm from Chicago, yeah. where are you really from? That mm. Phrase what that evokes in me is, uh, you don't think I'm American. <laughs> mm. You don't trust I'm American. And that always I think is a painful experience for many Asian Americans on that because I've heard that mm-hmm. a lot you know as yeah. I've been on my own journey is there a better question because sometimes mm-hmm. I genuinely just want to know I, mm-hmm. I want to know where you're from there have been times in ignorance that I li- literally was talking about like what country and then mm-hmm. there's been other times where I'm just like you know are you from Bethesda are you from mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. New York City is there a better question? Because even as you frame it and you talk about the perpetual foreigner and that mm-hmm. that helps me so much understand why there's hurt mm-hmm. behind mm-hmm. that question. What's mm-hmm. a better way to ask that question? Yeah, I, I think asking people about their ethnic identity is okay. I, tell me about your ethnic identity. Tell, tell me about your ethnic mm-hmm. heritage. Tell mm-hmm. me, I mean, tell me about your ethnic identity journey. Those questions I think are are perfectly acceptable. And it gives mm. the person the opportunity to tell that story however they want to tell it. And, may, and maybe mm. there is a beginning that began. Maybe they were born in Asia at some point in time. You don't know. Mm-hmm. But but that way you can give them the agency to figure out yeah, mm. how to tell That's that good. story. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's okay to ask, like, are you from Bethesda? Because I that like mm. that makes it clear that you are specifically asking, like, do you live around here? <laughs> that mm-hmm. I think yeah. is also yeah. you know, another way if you want to truly know, does someone come from this neighborhood or this community, then go ahead and name mm-hmm. it. Then there won't be any misunderstanding or any, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. Uh, any assumptions. 
Hey, friends, just interrupting one more time to tell you about another amazing partner, Nutrafol. I work in an office with a lot of women, and you know we talk about our hair, what products we love, which styling tools actually work for us, what to do when we're dealing with shedding and thinning. Y'all, millions of Americans are experiencing thinning hair. It's more than common. It's normal, but it's not openly talked about, especially among women, you guys. So going through it can feel lonely and frustrating. And it's time to change the conversation and join the thousands of women who are standing up for their strands with Nutrafol. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement, clinically shown to improve your hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage. Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting the five root causes of thinning. Are you ready for the list? Because we have them all. Stress, Hormones, environment, nutrition, and metabolism. They target those root causes through whole body health. Visit Nutrafol.com and take their hair wellness quiz. We love a quiz for personalized product recommendations that are unique to your hair needs. Nutrafol has three unique formulas to support women through all stages of life, including postpartum and menopause. Each formula is physician-formulated using natural, drug-free, medical-grade ingredients and consistently effective dosages so you get the most reliable results. In a clinical study, 86% of women, y'all, 86%, reported improved hair growth after six months of using Nutrafol. 3,000 top doctors and stylists recommend Nutrafol as an effective and high-quality solution for healthier hair. You can grow thicker, healthier hair, and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code That Sounds Fun to save $15 off your first month's subscription. That's their best offer anywhere, you guys. It's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time, plus free shipping on every order. So get $15 off at Nutrafol.com. It's spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code That Sounds Fun. And now back to finish up with Mike and Helen's conversation. I have a few more of things yeah, maybe to yeah. watch out for. So we talked about stereotyping. We talked about othering. Mocking is an absolute... No. And what I mean by that is I heard this just happened just recently on that on the hit show Abbott Elementary. I don't watch it, but I was noticing on Twitter that all of a sudden my Asian American friends were commenting. And I think it, I've heard it's an excellent show. So I think this is just mm. one of those off moments. But apparently one of the main characters did kind of a kung fu martial arts type of mocking kind of a mm. moment. And those those kinds of moments are are really painful for Asian Americans because it makes mm. you feel like our culture is our culture is able to be just made fun of. It's not valued. It's it's just something you can just joke about. And there's mm. no kind of honor um, afforded to mm, the cultural mm-hmm. reality. So there are ways to talk about martial arts that are honoring. And there are ways that are that are not. So I think mocking, using mm. any kind of mocking language, which my kids have heard many, many times, like racialized taunting. It's just, it mm. just, it's so painful. It's so painful. Mm. And it just, again, makes you feel like, you don't belong, uh, belong mm. here. And then, you know, and downplaying, if someone, if an Asian American says, that was hurtful, you know, I, I wish you would, hadn't said that, or I wish you hadn't used that mm-hmm. kind of language, or I wish you didn't kind of treat our culture in that way. If you were to hear back, oh, I was just joking. I didn't mean anything by it. That kind of downplaying mm. just adds to the mm. hurt, you mm. know, it just adds mm. to the hurt. So mm. I think... We don't want to be people who hurt other people. So I think if mm. someone is telling you that that was hurtful, then mm-hmm. we want to honor that um, that mm. risk they took to tell us that something was hurtful and apologize. Mm. 
Yeah. And yeah. just apologize. And then ignoring. You know, I think sometimes Asian Americans are often ignored in the conversation about race. Sometimes race becomes like this black white dynamic. And I think yeah. that can be hard for Asian Americans to feel like there's been a lot of discrimination and a lot of prejudice too that our community has experienced um, in just even the last two years since the pandemic. Mm, yeah. Yeah. You know, Asian American Pacific Islander hate has gone up significantly. There's a whole hashtag stop AAPI hate mm-hmm, that has been mm-hmm. tracking um, the incidents of Asian American racial violence, and th- that n- those numbers have just kept c- continued to increase at a rate that's alarming. So there still is, mm. there still unfortunately is a lot of prejudice mm. and discrimination and hatred toward Asian American mm. Pacific Islanders in this country. Mm-hmm. So just knowing yeah. that and just being able to to just say, okay, we don't want to ignore those incidences. We want to just recognize them and stand against them. That's important. Is there any advice you give those of us who want to lean in and we want to, we want to uh, learn, but we also want to speak up and advocate and work toward justice mm. um, as it relates to issues affecting uh, Asian Americans. I remember after the Atlanta shooting, mm. which was so traumatic and yeah. uh, being a pastor within a congregation that, that has such a high percentage of Asian Americans, mm. it was it's so tragic. And yet there was a, a sacred, um, it was a sacred experience for me to get to mm. sit. I've had so many people in our church, thankfully, uh, it ha- mm. not everybody, but so mm. a, a lot of people in our church who are upset with me when I've gone through the pain of George Floyd and Ahmaud yeah. Arbery and Breonna Taylor and all that. So it was a sacred experience for me to be able to sit with and learn from and lament with brothers yes. and sisters in our church. And uh, and I just did the little part that I could. I recorded a little mm-hmm. video speaking to uh, Asian American sisters and brothers in our church and um, uh, which the, uh, honestly got some pushback uh, from mm. other people in our church. But that was just a little thing that I could do just on my phone. Is there any advice you would give for those of us that want to learn, Mm -hmm. but that also want to work uh, to uh, shed light on and help in any little way that we can build a more just society for Asian American and uh, Pacific Islander folks in our country? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm so glad that you took the time and effort to say something. I think in the church in particular, when... There's a willingness for church leaders to just name those moments of racial violence and to and to and to lament, give space for that. That's that's tremendously helpful and healing. It, it affords the opportunity for healing because if it's ignored, that hurts so much more. I mean that mm. I, I feel like so many Christian churches and organizations still miss the boat there. Like I, I know of a number of my Asian American friends who were so frustrated when nothing was said about those Atlanta, Atlanta shootings. There was no, mm. no acknowledgement of what this means for Asian American, Asian Americans to witness yet another incidence of, of violence, but perpetuated towards clearly towards the Asian American community and mm-hmm. nothing is said from anyone in their Christian organizations or churches, that's so painful. So Mm. just being even willing to see those moments and to take time to acknowledge them, that is 
That's huge um, to be able to use your voice uh, in whatever way you're given the opportunity to use a voice to do that, whether whether in social media or whether in an organizational context. And then, and I think, in if you're at that next level trying to figure out what do we say or do, mm-hmm. uh, I think you did exactly the, the right thing, which is reaching out to Asian Americans to get their perspective on how would this best be handled, like just giving agency to those who are most in pain to make some of those determinations of how best to talk about it, how best to acknowledge it, how best to recognize it, how to lament over it. Mm. Um, Yeah, just being willing to let those who have been the most hurt be the ones to create the the right treatment, I think is a really Mm. helpful, prescriptive way to go about it. And there might not be full agreement, but just giving again agency to a group of people who might be able to collectively together figure out the right way to go forward, I think is really helpful. Mm-hmm. It takes more time. It means a loss mm-hmm. of control. It's all those things that are really, really hard to do, mm-hmm. but I think super important. For an individual, um, just even being able to note who do they follow on, say, social media, if you're a person who uses social media, are you are the leaders that you tend to follow if you look and see who they all are? Are you someone who are actively trying to learn from Asian American leaders? Are you following Asian American leaders or other leaders of color to try to learn from them to, to ascertain what's the right thing to do as opposed to like speaking first, listening first, learning first, I think is really, mm-hmm. really important. And then amplifying other people's voices, especially mm-hmm. those from those communities that have been most hurt, I think is a really mm. wise thing to do. You don't always have to be the person to speak up. You can be the mm-hmm. one to give your platform to others so that they can mm-hmm. make proper expressions that you can learn from and support. All right, I want to make a, just a hard pivot. I know we've, I've already, mm. thank you so much. I've already taken up a lot of your time, but there's no way I can have you on and not ask ask about this. So you are Director of Product Innovation at InterVarsity Press, right? <laughs> yes, that's uh, my title. And so, man, I, we, I got to somehow on some platform get yeah. you on again to be able to talk more about do that. what this season of your life has been devoted to, uh, you know, mm. which is helping to get some of these resources out in the world. But mm-hmm. I do thank you, not just as a host of this episode, but personally mm. for uh, the ways that you have just so vulnerably and wisely and graciously mm. shared out of your own personal experience, but also out of just accumulated wisdom from walking through these issues for so long. And uh, as an African-American man, um, as a pastor, as somebody who's trying to grow myself, I've just been so, um, I've just learned so much. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was trying not to stop you every two seconds because (laughs) there's just so much context you gave that actually locked some things into place for me and just helped Mm. me to even understand some of my own thoughts, my own experiences. Mm. I didn't even get to talk to you about as a, as a black man, the, the ways that Mm. I I grew up thinking about Asian Americans. Mm. And so even Mm -hmm. as you went through all of the othering and stereotyping and all of that, I just found myself thinking I've done all of those things. Mm, all mm. those things and mm-hmm. and over and God in his grace and just the graciousness and courageous truthfulness of other people around me mm. I've been able to identify some of those and grow mm-hmm. in some of those and then I'm still finding ways in which I still need to be transformed um, mm. and so you've been a part of that you know for for me today so mm. I really really appreciate 
uh, you being on. And I got to end with this question because the episode is called That Sounds Fun. So what what is fun to you? What do you do for fun? Don't tell me read book manuscripts. Uh, I was about to say. What, like, what, <laughs> what do you do for fun? What do I do for fun? Well, you know, you're going to laugh at this. I, I So I have three boys I mentioned, and mm. I love watching my boys do their thing. So my eldest, mm. the pianist, so I love watching him perform. Awesome. My middle son is a baseball player. I love watching him pitch. My youngest mm. is a bowler, and I love watching him bowl. And seeing each like of them. Like in a league? It, oh, yeah. He, I mean, if, if this oh, is Oh, so topic. bowling leagues are coming back. <laughs> Let me yes. tell you, the world <laughs> of competitive youth bowling is this thing. And boy, they they need more kids of color. So, you know, I'm, I'm mm. that's another whole topic we can talk about. I recently had a conversation with their um, vice president of the United States Bowling Congress because I was frustrated that in their diversity This is really a thing. They ignored Asian Americans. I'm like, okay, we got to talk. Mm. But yes, this is a thing. And, and wow. you know, they need they need more youth of color mm. who can really mm. help the sport. But yeah, it's amazing. The youth bowling is massively, it's intense and super wow. fun when you start getting wow. into it. I just went bowling last week. I'm like, I did didn't even, really? uh, I did. I really did. Um, that's amazing. I'm looking into that. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, well, thanks so much uh, for being so gracious with your time. And I've really enjoyed uh, interviewing you and having you on the podcast. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Pastor Mike. Absolutely. Oh, you guys, aren't they incredible? I know, I know, I know. Oh, gosh. Mike Kelsey for president, right? Oh, I love that guy. Hey, be sure to grab a copy of The Racewise Family, The Missional Mom, or Growing Healthy Asian American Churches, depending on what applies to your current situation. And follow Helen on social media so you can tell her thanks for being on the show. And let's be sure to give all the love to Mike Kelsey for hosting the show this week. He is just my absolute favorite. I just adore him and his wife, Ashley, their kids. So Mike Kelsey for president. I'll say it again. And if you need anything else from me, you know, I'm embarrassingly easy to find. Annie F. Downs on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the places you may need me. That is how you can find me. I think that's it for me today, friends. Go out or stay home and do something that sounds fun to you. And I will do the same. And today, what sounds fun to me is seeing new places in Israel I've never seen because that is where I am. (laughs) Y'all have a great day. We'll see you back here on Thursday to continue learning with Mike Kelsey and his dear friend, Pastor Mitchell Lee. We'll see y'all then.